maybe for our benefit, could you describe what a Stilton cheese tastes like? Because I might Ooh. it might add a little bit to ah, that. Yes. yes. So a Stilton cheese tastes a bit like you know when you've been wearing socks for about six weeks stop <laughs> and you have some kind of fungal infection. But delicious mm. socks. Not like gross socks. Yes. Uh, and and you've maybe been walking around in some damp fields. <laughs> nice and- fields. Beautiful fields. <laughs> With flowers and just, stuff. Just in your socks, just no shoes, <laughs> exactly. just walking in the socks on the ground. Right, and then it, maybe got you got yep. caught in a rain shower and yeah. then took a shower in your, in your socks <laughs> and then slept in your socks <laughs> and then did that for a year or two. And then you put them in the airing cupboard or the microwave <laughs> for a few minutes. And it's, it's, oh, it's very, oh my goodness, it's quite, <laughs> it's, oh. fu- it's freaking delicious. Smashing Security, episode 229, Dating Leaks, Rights to Repair, and a Stinky Bishop, with Carol Terrio and Graham Cluley. Hello, hello, and welcome to Smashing Security, episode 229. My name's Graham Cluley. I'm Carol Terrio. And we are joined this week by a special guest, someone who hasn't been on the show before. It's Paul Roberts from the Security Ledger. Hello, Paul. Hey, Graham. Hey, Carol. How are you? Good. It's been a long time, Paul. It has indeed. Years. Years since we've seen each other. I think decades. I'm actually embarrassed you haven't been on the show before. Well, don't be. We might be embarrassed after the show's recorded as well that he's been on the show. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Let's see what happens. (laughs) This could be a disaster. Paul. For our listeners that don't know you, what can you tell them? What do they need to know about you? I'm the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Security Ledger, securityledger.com, which is a cybersecurity news website since 2012. And I'm the founder of securerepairs.org, which is a group of information security and information technology professionals who support the right to repair. Okay, so all we need now is to thank this week's sponsors, 1Password, 1Login, and Before. Their support helps us give you the show for free. Coming up on today's show, Graham, what do you got? I'm going to be talking about cheese. Whoa, got border cyber? Okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Paul, what about you? I'm going to be talking about the right to repair and cybersecurity. Super. And I'm going to be looking for love in Japan. Plus, we have an interview with Javad Malik from Before. All this and much more coming up on this episode of Smashing Security. Now, chums, chums, do you have a secret stash? Do you have a secret stash, Crow? Of <laughs> many things, yes. Paul? Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely do. Yeah? What, what sort of stash do you have? <laughs> None of your f- business. Come well, on. Exactly, Graham. Private if I were stash. to tell you, then it wouldn't be a secret anymore, would it? Very true. Well, you know, in the middle of the night, if you can't sleep, do you find yourself sneaking out of bed, trying not to wake your partner? creeping tippy-toe down the stairs, opening the fridge, and hallelujah, there, hidden behind the kale and the quinoa, there it is, the thing which will satisfy all of your munchies, some stinky cheese. Mm. No, in the middle of the night? No. You know what? I've always wanted to be one of those people. When I was a kid, I used to obsess about being able to do that when I was older. I could go down to the fridge. No one would, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't wake anyone up, whatever, whatever. But I never do it. I often have cravings just before bed, but I, I really try and resist them. But I must say, Graham, I have never craved cheese. A soft little one like a French brie, something hard mm. like a cheddar. 
you're selling it the way you say it. I feel like I should be eating do you cheese have a, before. Yeah, bed. do you have a cheese platter in your fridge already for, <laughs> your, for your four o'clock munchies? With my Jacob's cream crackers at hand <laughs> and my pickles. Your chutneys. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Cheese is my crack cocaine. I'm not being flippant. Scientists at the University of Michigan, which is in the United States of Michigan. America, they say what are you being local. What? What? Michigan, isn't it? Michigan. It's Michigan. Like, <laughs> what's the Michigan? Uh, it sounds Gloucestershire. Like... <laughs> That's what you just did. Not McChicken. <laughs> yeah, not McChicken. That is that is Michigan. something different. Pretamanga. Anyway, they, those those. Those boffins, they say that cheese triggers a part of the brain in a similar way to addictive illegal drugs. So I thought it would be fun if we could play a little game. I am going to give you a name and you, you are the contestants, Paul and Kroll, you have to Mm. tell me if it is a cheese or something else narcotic, okay? Are you ready to play the game? <laughs> okay. I might. Okay. Right. I don't know if I'm going to be good or bad Cheese at this. Cheese or we'll wheeze. Let's decide. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I am ready. <laughs> I was born to play this game. <laughs> Stinky Bishop. Stinky Cheese. Bishop. Cheese. Paul? Uh... I'm going to say that's cheese. Yeah, yeah sure. It cheese. is a cheese. It's also an unpleasant medical condition produced by... <laughs> uh, produced since 1972 from the milk of Gloucester <laughs> cattle has a distinctive aroma made famous in a Wallace and Gromit movie. Okay, uh, next one. Poochie love. Poochie love. That is not cheese. I just don't know uh, what illicit is, so I'm going to say not cheese. I'm going to break it. I'm going to say that is cheese. Well, it's a strain of marijuana, the old Mary Jane. I'm the afraid. jazz cigarette. Yes. <laughs> okay, next, dirt lover, dirt lover. That's going to be not a cheese, not a cheese. Yeah, I, I'm with Carol on that. Yeah. Dirt lover comes from the green dirt farm in Missouri. It is a cheese covered in a layer of vegetable ash. It's also a sexual fetish, of course. Okay, next. Next. Shatner's bassoon. Shatner's bassoon. That is not a cheese. I feel like there's some inside knowledge here that I lack. So I'm no, going to no, break no, with Carl and say no. that is a I cheese. Swear, I swear to God, there's none. I'm no, Carl totally... is right. It's a made up drug. Um, fat bottom girl. Fat bottom girl. <laughs> Not a cheese. Not cheese, I agree. It is a cheese. Oh, <sighs> from where? <It's, laughs> from somewhere. Oh. Goes well with red wine, apparently. I love that you do your research. It has flavours of almonds, butter, slightly tangy sweetness. It's also a song by Queen. <laughs> and finally, Purple Monkey Balls. Definitely a cheese. My favourite cheese. <laughs> Wait, what is it again? <laughs> Purple Monkey Balls. <laughs> 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 You're not going to get it. It's a strain of uh, marijuana again. Yeah, so go. yeah. So, oh, Why are you that. talking about marijuana all the time? Because I've explained that cheese are my type of drug. Now, is right? is oh. marijuana legal in the UK? Oh, no, 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 no. I don't have any of that sort oh, of Because here in Massachusetts, it is legal. Oh. Yeah. You are can... you constantly high? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. No comment. Well, a blue Stilton is my crystal meth. I know it's bad for me, but mm. it's irresistible. I would sell my kid's bike 
I'd become a rent boy if I thought I could fund my love of a stinky bishop. But some people, some people aren't like me. Some people haven't gone as deep into vice as me. And they've they've contented themselves with the likes of cocaine, heroin, MDMA, horse tranquilizers, that kind of thing. Paracetamol. Right. <laughs> we all have we all have. Yeah, our, we've yeah. all got our vices, right? Some people go to street corners to score. I mm. go down to Waitrose and breathe in the contents of the cheese counter. Some people do yoga. You know? Exactly. Everyone's got their thing, right? Yeah. Cheese strikes me as a very English thing. And it's not just from the Wallace and Gromit. But I mean, of course, here in the United States, we are defined by American cheese, which if you've ever oh, had it. That's not cheese at all. <laughs> no. Is barely cheese. I mean, <laughs> it's mostly noticeable for being incredibly regularly square. Well, look, I'm going to switch from cheese now. I'm going to go to hard drugs because a chap called Carl Stewart from Liverpool has been a bit of a naughty boy. He used the name Toffee Force and was up to no good on EncroChat. Do you guys know what EncroChat is? No. New one to me, Graham. EncroChat is a secure encrypted messaging service which runs on modified Android phones. It promises worry-free secure communications. Now, can you imagine... Who would be particularly interested in spending <laughs> thousands of dollars and a, a regular subscription to have such a phone? Celebrities. Elon Musk. <laughs> it's well, it's criminals. It's yes, criminals. Of course. Oh, right. It is criminals. Sorry, so, Elon. And last year, law enforcement agents across Europe, they managed to crack into EncroChat, um, proving that its encryption and the security wasn't quite as good as people had imagined. And apparently it had over 60,000 users worldwide, 10,000 in the UK. Mm. And everyone thought they were safe with it, right? They thought, well, I've got this special phone. I bought it from this French company, EncroChat. And if the cops ever come knocking on my door, all I have to do is enter a four-digit pin mm-hmm. onto the phone and it wipes automatically all the data from the So phone. that was their sales point? Was that their sales pitch? The pitch was really, these are totally secure communications. We don't save anything. You can delete everything from your phone. No exactly. one can find it. Bish, bash, bosh. Okay. So it wasn't just the app. It was the phone hardware itself. It was a modified version of Android. That's right. Huh. right, right, right special phones. And uh, and this has been quite a big deal. They've arrested lots of people having cracked into EncroChat. And they had this chap, Carl Stewart, who they suspected was supplying large amounts of Class A and Class B drugs under the name Toffee Force. How could they prove this? Well, it turned out that this chap, Toffee Force, was a lover of Stilton cheese. Okay. (laughs) Not just any Stilton cheese. But the kind of mature blue Stilton cheese you buy at Marks and Spencer. Mm -hmm. Which is all right. It's not like the best or anything. Well, according to the... I'm a cheese nut. Well, according Mm. to the packaging, it says (laughs) delicately rich and creamy. (laughs) And he, I mean, he was from Liverpool. He wasn't going to have some glamorous, exotic cheese. He probably watched the Marks and Spencer's ad. You know, with exactly. a woman, you know, who'd go like, this is not just any cheese. This is a Marks and Spencer's. Maybe for our benefit, <laughs> could you describe what a Stilton cheese tastes like? Because it might, oh. it might add a little bit to ah, that. Yes. yes. So Stilton cheese tastes a bit like, you know, when you've been wearing socks for about six weeks stuff, <laughs> and you have some kind of fungal infection. But delicious mm. socks, not like gross socks. Yes. 
Uh, and and you've maybe been walking around in some damp fields. <laughs> nice and- fields, beautiful fields. <laughs> With flowers and just, stuff. Just in your socks, just no shoes, <laughs> exactly. just walking in the socks on the ground. Yeah, and then it, maybe got you got yep. caught in a rain shower and yeah. then took a shower in your, in your socks <laughs> mm-hmm. and then slept in your socks mm-hmm. and then did that for a year or two. And then you put them in the airing cupboard or the microwave uh, for about for a few minutes. And it's, it's oh, it's very, oh my goodness, it's quite, oh, it's, it's, it's Freaking delicious. It's it is delicious. Really good Stilton is like a yeah. cream because it's so, anyway, it's delicious. If you like blue cheese and you haven't had it, yeah, yeah do it's it. It's good. It's okay. good. It sounds like a full body experience. You want it in a jar. That's all I'm saying. Not in a packet. In a jar. That's when it's <laughs> okay. when they scraped yeah. off the socks. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It, will, it will try and infect everything else with the yes. smell. Yeah, your whole fridge. <laughs> it's not as bad a smell as a, is it a durian fruit, Carol? The, the, durian, oh, yeah. Yes. yes, which I've never smelled, although oh. I have seen <laughs> film of people smelling it. Oh, and really? they, <laughs> I've heard it is quite the oh, scent. I had a friend once. <laughs> yeah. Who will remain nameless. <laughs> Who tricked me into eating a chocolate without telling me it contained durian fruit? It's like I came down and I was like, oh, it's the most delicious chocolate ever. Oh my god, oh my god, here's one. Gotta have it. Oh my god, it's so good. Oh my god, go and try it. And he just shammed it in right in his face, and I just watched. <laughs> he just- a durian fruit tastes a bit like sewage, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't well, try it. I can it. tell you it does. What is the thing with durian fruit? Why are people it's an, it's like a delicacy in particularly in Asia I hear like it's, people yeah, are it's a mad delicious, for it. I think it's a delicious texture and delicious taste but a horrible smell if raw and improperly prepared. I think you're not allowed to transport it on passenger airlines, yeah. is that right? Yes. Because yeah. it's it's too smelly. What did that chocolate taste like, Graham? I can't remember the chocolate part of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, back to Stilton cheese, which is nothing like durian fruit. It's, it's a delicacy, but quite pungent. Anyway, so this chap, right, this chap, Carl Stewart, Toffee Force, what he did was he had posted on EncroChat a photograph of a block of Stilton cheese in the palm of his hand while standing in the Isle of Marks and Spencer. And from that picture, just of his hand holding the cheese, the police were able to identify him. And oh my! Did they magnify his fingerprints? Exactly. Shut up! Shut up! CSI. (laughs) See, I would, I would have thought they went back and looked at surveillance film (laughs) and found the guy holding a cheese and his cell phone up. That could have been me. That could have been me. Holding the cheese. <laughs> At 4am in the morning. That might happen hundreds of times a day in, in the UK, though. So the Met Police now, they've arrested more than 60 people, many of whom have been charged with serious drug trafficking or firearms offences. Carl Stewart, this chap with the cheese, he's now been sentenced to 13 years and six months in the clink. I can't remember what he did now. All I remember is he liked cheese. He was trafficking. I- <laughs> <laughs> he was trafficking in horse tranquilizers and heroin. and oh, So yeah. he obviously had, had a record and had prints on file with law enforcement prior to this, I guess. Well, like, that's I, I, they'd already arrested him. So maybe they took his prints then and, and matched them. To oh, ones in the right. I'm, I'm not, right. There we go. That is a level of detail which I would expect a serious reporter like those at the security ledger to investigate <laughs> rather than me. Yeah, don't leave it to Graham. 
got for us this week? Uh, well, I'm here to talk about the right to repair. What is a right to repair? Okay, so a right to repair is basically what it sounds like. It is a legal right, in other words, written into law, that gives you as the owner of a thing the right to repair it. And usually what that means practically, because you'd be like, well, I can repair it. Um, mm. But these days, increasingly, because everything we use basically has software on it, and, and also these days, digital locks, right? Like DRM, digital rights management mm-hmm. software. Um, owners need more than just the the thing itself. They need access to the software that runs it to read error codes and figure out what's wrong with it. Uh, if there's a part, a component on a circuit board that has uh, burned out, they need a schematic diagram to figure out where that component is on the board and a part number to replace it themselves if they want to do that repair. And so right to repair laws basically codify that in law and say – As a manufacturer, if you make a thing and you have authorized repair people who, you know, get access to these tools and parts and information, then you also need to make that available to, you know, your customers, the people who own the device and basically their agents, people they might hire to do a repair. So independent repair shops. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because I honestly, it, okay, I'm sorry. I'm already on your side. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) listeners. I didn't, I didn't keep the tension up, but okay, carry on. I'll, I'll get on my soapbox later. (laughs) So this is a really important thing. And it is something that is a little bit esoteric. I think most people don't you know, pay a lot of attention to this, but it is a movement that's been picking up steam both in the EU and in the UK and in North America and in Australia um, and is really has a lot of people paying attention to it. And I think because we are increasingly inhabiting a world of intelligent, internet-connected, software-driven stuff and the more onerous these kind of manufacturer-imposed ecosystems, kind of walled gardens become, um, the more people are, are kind of taking notice of this and saying, you know what, this is not fair, or this is inconvenient for me, or this is costing me money needlessly, and I want to do a repair myself. Uh, could I give you like a, a situation and you could tell me how the right to repair movement might suggest I would go about it? Yes. It happened to a friend, definitely not me, okay? But (laughs) I was on my laptop, right, with a glass of very, very nice whiskey. Mm. And then my husband asked me a question, and I used my hand to communicate, which I do often. Like, F off. Like, (laughs) or or I love you, probably. Uh And and I spilt all the the, the whiskey all over the keyboard of the laptop, mm-hmm. which basically, you know, I then put it upside down in rice because I mm. read that was a good idea. Mm-hmm. But it's not been working really well. So in that sitch, are you saying that that would be something I could say, look, you have to help me try and fix this? So the problem would be this, which would be you did something really common, which is spilled a liquid into your laptop keyboard. Um, And in that situation, there is probably uh, some damage caused by that that is preventing your laptop from working correctly. Moisture. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe there were some short circuits of components on the motherboard on the computer as the liquid seeped in. And all the rice that's now stuck to it as well. A little, <laughs> little, who knows what the rice did. So basically, you want to fix your laptop. And Right to Repair is really about what are your options as a consumer for getting that laptop fixed? Okay. Right. And there, there generally, in most things in life, there should be three, which is, you know, the manufacturer might offer to repair it or have one of their authorized or licensed repair people do it. Yeah. Um, Check, you yeah. can try to repair it yourself if you're technically inclined, and many people are. Um, or you could hire an independent, in other words, non-authorized uh, repair shop to do it. And generally, it's like with your automobile, right, your car. If you bring it to the dealership and their repair people, um, they'll have all the parts and tools and stuff, but it might be more expensive. If you bring it to the corner repair shop, um, same thing. They'll be able to fix it, maybe slightly less expensive. Maybe they won't use the manufacturer's OEM parts, um, but you'll save money. And obviously, if you go out in your driveway and go under your car and repair it yourself, that's the cheapest solution. And that's mm. a functioning market. The way it works for many devices these days, including your MacBook, you need parts and access to information. So the reality for many consumers today who are in your situation is they bring their MacBook to the Apple store, to the mm-hmm. Genius Bar, and they say, mm, they take it out back and light incense and wave their hands over it and bring it back out to you and say, sorry, no liquid damage. We don't do repairs like this. We suggest that you buy a new MacBook. Right. Yeah, I'm waiting to meet a real genius at the Genius Bar, <laughs> yeah. honestly, because I've been there a lot looking for them. Right. Because, you know, I like smart and, people. And when they say that, it does not mean that that is an unrepairable laptop. It just means it's a repair that the Genius Bar does not do because Apple does not allow them to do it. Apple doesn't want to hire and retain the people to do the soldering work or the more complex repairs that that would require. Right. Okay. So yeah. they would basically say, why don't you just buy a new laptop? And most people uh-huh. would be like, okay, I'll buy a new laptop. It costs you thousands of dollars. Um, it is not the cheapest option available to you. Your old laptop gets thrown in a landfill where it leaches dangerous chemicals into the earth. But that's the way that that system set up. The other alternative would be to take it to an independent repair shop where they might have the skills and tools to repair that liquid damage. But Many of those independent repair shops do not have access to the tools that Apple right. makes available to figure out, okay, Carol spilled whiskey into her laptop. What components actually burned <laughs> do out? Do I have a vacuum anywhere? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. What components burned out? What do we need to replace on this? What is yeah. broken exactly? And you need software to tell that to you. And Apple has a whole bunch of tools that they don't make available to non-authorized repair people. Oh, wow. They also don't make the parts available. So if you right. want to replace a discrete component, they don't give you the schematic diagram to tell you what those parts are and where they are. And they I'm don't give you an access Apple to the parts. I'm such an Apple fangirl. I'm really feeling this right now. It isn't just Apple. So this is, in one way or another, it's many device makers, um, though not all. Companies like Dell and Hewlett-Packard um, make both parts and diagnostic tools uh, and schematics. And sell you ink services, like <laughs> 50 pounds a month or something? There, there are major computer <laughs> manufacturers who are very pro-repair and have a, a healthy ecosystem of parts that you can buy inexpensively and access to tools and so on. So what's, what's the argument that these companies 
who aren't sort of making it easier to repair things. What's their argument for doing this? They're variations on the same argument that the car dealership would make to you to discourage you from ever going to the corner repair shop, right? Mm -hmm. Which is... Our parts are superior to their parts. Their parts are going to break or and, and cause you to get in an accident. Our mechanics are PhDs walking around in lab coats, and their repair people are grease monkeys without high school diplomas. Um, <laughs> you know, we care about the safety and privacy of your data, and those other people are probably criminals who will steal it and sell it. So it's it's a bunch of um, kind of misleading and untrue qualitative statements about the superiority of authorized repair. But there's no data to back up any of those claims, but they make them anyway. And what do you suspect are the real reasons why they're not doing this? Uh, so a couple things, um, it, and it depends on the company. In the case mm-hmm. of Apple, there certainly is... You know, obviously having an, a monopoly on aftermarket service and parts is incredibly valuable to Apple. Yeah. Um, it, you know, they make money off the Genius Bar, certainly. However, I actually think that that's less of an issue for them than the fact that they really want to try and create a situation where the life cycle of their phones, particularly and iPads, is as low as possible. They want you to get a new phone every two to three years. And if there are robust repair options that let you extend the life of your phone to five, seven, 10 years, that has a major impact Mm. on Apple's revenue models. Um, For other companies, and I've written a lot about John Deere, a major U.S. agricultural equipment maker, it seems clear that the monopoly on the aftermarket parts and service is the point. Yeah, that's where you make your money. That's where they're making their money. And mm-hmm. and and service revenue as a, as a percentage of their overall revenue has skyrocketed in the last 10 or 12, 15 years as they've been able to basically lock out independent repair and owners from being able to work on their own stuff. Fun topic, Paul. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's an important topic. I was just kidding. I was just trying to make a little levity there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, let me tell you why I think this is really important. Okay, so first of all, mm-hmm. let me tell you, do you want the, this is a cybersecurity podcast, so here's the, here's the link to cybersecurity. Okay? Right, and, yes. Because yes. I had plenty in my story, let me point that out. I, you did. Yours was all cybersecurity. <laughs> yes. Okay, yeah. so I got involved in this because I started going to like fix-it clinics in and around Boston where you go and just get stuff repaired by people mm-hmm. in your community. It's great. Before COVID, they were a thing. Um, and ended up talking to a guy, Nathan Proctor, who is the head of the you know, Right to Repair program at USPIRG, the Public Interest Research Group. And he was talking about the efforts to get this law passed in the, some of the states in the United States. And he was saying that you know, one of the big arguments against, one of the things that sends lawmakers screaming is cybersecurity, that you know, vendors, OEMs mm-hmm. can come in and say, hackers, hacking, data theft, and people kind of run screaming. And you know, I knew enough to know that those arguments were almost certainly not accurate, um, that there wasn't really a cyber risk in repair and the types of things these laws were asking about that, you know, devices get hacked, you know, because of other problems, right? You know, poor configuration, vulnerable software, you name it. And so I started this group Secure Repairs to basically say, Listen, as a security community, we should speak with one voice on this and we should speak the truth about what where security risks are with connected devices and where they aren't. And we should use our 
influence to sort of try and bend this policy discussion in the right direction. And the right direction being the one based on facts and not fear. Do you know what, though? If I made a cell phone and the world decided, oh, my God, I need to have that and everyone bought it, I would be an absolute control freak about everything about it because oh I you're think- not suggesting apple are control freaks are you that's not that doesn't <laughs> no, sound I, like them all at all I'm saying is i all i'm saying is i get it right because i understand what you're saying a hundred percent it makes a hundred percent sense i agree i agree yes. ethically morally i agree yes but i also can recognize in me were i the successful creator of this tiny thing that i didn't and i thought i was so smart and no one else could possibly do as good a job as my people could which mm-hmm. i would because that's the type of person I am, I would be exactly the same. And it would suck. And I would need people like you on my case. If you have a business, why would you not want a monopoly on whatever it is that you do? Exactly. Right? Who would not want that? What do you use, Paul? I have an Apple iPhone. I have an Apple iPhone. Yeah. Uh, it's a, you know, it's an older model. That's why he's hot on all this. <laughs> he's peeved about every time he has to go to the genius bar. They won't right. blink and fix it. They won't replace his battery. Right. Carole, what have you got for us this week? Cluey, do you remember Yik Yak? Yes. <laughs> Can you tell our lovely listeners what about our plans on Yik Yak? Well, many years ago? ago. It's probably about 20 years ago. 20? I thought I put 15 uh, in my who notes knows? Here. But anyway, Carole, uh, <laughs> you, I, and our two lovely Croatian friends, we ganged up together to take on the world and create a social networking dating website thing that was going to make us a fortune. And we called it Yik Yak. Yep. And we bought the domains. Yes. And I remember we had one meeting where we were kind of like, okay, how are we going to parse people's choosing, right? Like we were making up this algorithm for ourselves, like hair color, height, right? People care about that. And we had a meeting about discussing all this stuff. But did you ever think about whether people would just use it for hookup versus serious relationship? Did I ever occur to you? It never occurred to me at all that people might want to have sex. No, that's not a thought which ever crosses my mind. (laughs) Well... If we were around today, single, free, and easy. Paul, you're not uh, you're not single and free right now, right? God, no. Yeah. Yeah, we're all married. Okay. So, okay. But if we were single, uh, we would probably be using dating apps to meet people. And the thing is, apparently, the pandemic has changed oh, really? online dating. There's a shift. Hmm. So it obviously had a reputation for being a little fast paced. Mm -hmm. You know, I knew people who could munch through matches as though they were Skittles, right? (laughs) The Beeb suggested that some of the changes might be here to stay even as life returns to normal, but because of course this all has to do with the pandemic. So someone said, I think video calls are very much here to stay as a means of pre-screening people you meet on apps. Oh God, how awful would that be? I love oh, it. I'm I'm kind of surprised that people weren't doing that before. Like, are you really going to go right. out and just meet somebody randomly, you know, oh, in, in meat space? <laughs> so, and someone says, once the first lockdown ended, I still preferred initially getting to know people in the virtual world before mm-hmm. we went for mm-hmm. drinks. I feel it's definitely a positive trend. I'm now going on fewer dates, but when I do, it tends to be far more likely that date goes well. Okay. All right. Right? Because you're screening. You kind of meet someone. You're like, okay, I don't like you, but you don't have to schlep Is there chemistry over Zoom, though? I mean, is that a thing? Like, can you have chemistry with somebody over a Zoom connection? 
They wouldn't be able to smell my, smell my pheromone. <laughs> I'm going to call my husband tonight. I'm going to say, go upstairs to your office. I'll call him on Zoom and I'll see if there's more flirtiness. Oh, we know what he's like. He'll be very flirty. <laughs> oh, look. He fell asleep watching TV again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's normally me, actually. Okay. Before the pandemic, though, apparently many couples still met at school, mm-hmm. mutual friends, family, church, bars, whatever. Right? But then pandemic happened. And this is confirmed by people like Match Group, you know, which own dozens of dating right. apps, Tinder, OkCupid, Hinge, or Hange, as some of us like to call it. They reported an 11% increase in average subscribers in a 12-month mid-pandemic period. Hmm. That's pretty big, right? And they just think that the pace is slowing down. So the data is showing that people are being more selective and intentional about who they're reaching out to in the first place. Of course, because they can't go meet people. Of course they're right. being, Yes, of course it's slower down because you can't go out. <laughs> exactly. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking who's, who's winning in this, right? Because there are some apps out there that are geared to more serious relationships than just the bone-in time. <laughs> Sorry. So what did you say? Bone-in. Bone bone <laughs> I'm crying. <laughs> like a bone-in radio show? What's... <laughs> then, then the more Is that one B, night stand. B0N1N? <laughs> I wouldn't know, Paul. Come on. <laughs> So, so serious relationship websites like the Japanese Omiyae. You know, I'm saying it wrong. Fuck. So I've got my husband to teach me. <laughs> Sorry, is, is, that a, is it spelled no, fuck? Or is it like Omiyae Latin or something? What is that? Oh, no. I've got the giggles now. This is really bad. Omiyae. <laughs> Omiyae. Right. Okay. How do you spell okay. it? <laughs> Just spell it. I have the giggles. I can't stop now. O M I. Uh-huh. Is that it? O M I. If so, you're definitely pronouncing it incorrectly. <laughs> no. O M I A I. Oh, Omiyae. 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 Catchy name. They're not listening anyway, Cross. So don't worry. They're not listening. But anyway, all I can tell you is the name connotes traditional matchmaking systems, okay? That has been going on for centuries. So the name means like look, meet, or look, love. There's like a jeu de mots there mm-hmm. somewhere in the OMIA. As someone described it in an app review saying the search function is very detailed, allows you to specify preferences in various fields, including nationality, education, income, and body type. So in Japan, that seems to be the four things that matter. <laughs> nationality, education, income, and body type. Ooh. So, Japanese, smart, rich, thin. <laughs> That's all they care about, it seems. Okay, it focuses on trying to offer its customers an opportunity for a long-term relationship rather than a short-term flame. Right. Five to seven million people have used this, and they claim they facilitate more than 50 million successful matches so far. Like, what's, what's a successful How do they match? know that? Yeah, exactly. What, three months, six months, a marriage? Do people go back to the app and say, yep, that one worked, or I yeah. snookered her or whatever? And then they, they get, like, a 10-pound voucher? No. Yeah. yeah. I like the way that they're sort of like, well, we're, we're different because we're trying to get people to have long-term relationships. And it's like, how much, like, is that really a new concept? I don't think it is. Like, 
Yeah. Hey, it's all rebranding, dude. There are you really know, two flavors in the dating app world, which is hookups and people who want to have relationships. Like those are the two. That's basically the two choices. That is. Yeah. So anyway, the reason I'm talking about it is they got hacked. Okay? Oh, oh. At two million users mm. and most likely exposed. Okay, now they announced this on a Friday. Weren't we talking about that earlier? The, the Friday announcements, right? So they did this. And they said that the personal data of 1.71 million users was likely to have leaked due to unauthorized access to its server. Oh, dear. Okay, so number one, the first thing to know is Bloomberg said the value of Omie's share fell almost 20%. Mm. Okay, and that is the biggest drop that company ever saw since it got listed in 2017. And they're valued around 70 million. So a big chunk of change. The parent company notified the public of the breaches and they've put together this kind of document, which I want us to look at in a second. But basically, the still unknown hackers have made away with usernames, photographs, as well as data from ID cards, drivers, licenses, and passports. <sighs> all of which were mandatory during the registration. Mm. And this was all for their security messaging, which we'll get to in a second, okay? Oh, so they they asked for all this kind of really detailed personal information and scans of things like ID cards and passports. To make sure that they could say, we know who you're, we're validating the people. No mischief mm -hmm. makers. I can't create an account called myself Gloria something or other. Exactly. And, and right. Unless I have Gloria's passport, right. <laughs> They've put a statement, and Paul, I'm particularly interested in your point of view here, both as a journalist and someone who lives in the States, right? Oh, okay. and he's probably read millions of these. You may have to do a little quick Google Translate, depending on how good your Japanese is, because I don't think I can send it to you in English. My Japanese is excellent. Okay, well, good. I hope you read that in real time. <laughs> so... <laughs> By which I mean, <laughs> Chrome did it for me. Fantastic. Okay. okay, so this is their their apology and notice regarding member information leakage due to unauthorized access. Okay, right off the bat, I'm thinking that is not from the U.S. Yes. From a liability standpoint, right? Yeah, that that is true. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I I have seen press conferences before from Japanese companies after they've been hacked where the the board actually go on television and do a very deep bow of apology. Well, I think we should adopt it. Yeah. I'd love that. I know. I'm so with you. Right. So second paragraph, the we deeply apologize for any inconvenience caused by our members and all concerned. So inconvenience, I think, is a little bit of a light word, considering you've you've somehow my passport number has gotten snarfled along with all my <laughs> other personal ID. Yes. Um, but they say at this time, they're kind of seek, searching the web and they're saying they're not looking. At, see, that's a really hard statement to make, right? Like, we haven't mm -hmm. seen it be used, therefore it's not mm -hmm. happening yet. Because we're, maybe we're yeah. not looking in the right places, you know, I don't know. So mm -hmm. they're, they're searching the web for exposed members, is that what you're saying? Yeah, are they? Are they? Are they? <laughs> Thank you, Paul. <laughs> Glad you got it. Oh, were you being dirty? <laughs> yes, I was. Oh, I don't get that. I'm like totally not Don't worry. Sort of it's good stuff. that you don't get it, girl. <laughs> and they're getting a lot of hits, too. <laughs> we're just going to crack on. We're cracking on. We're cracking on. So they... <laughs> but like health insurance cards, passport numbers. They have this mm. also, this ID number Japan, the numbers card, driver's license. Yeah. So, and it says of these, about 60%, which is the majority of the total, thank you, is occupied by driver license image data. So they also have your pick. Ugh. Ugh. 
But they that's great. That's yeah. Well, yeah, and then they say, "Don't worry though, because we outsource our financial stuff, so no one got a hold of the credit card info." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, phew. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you can always cancel a credit card. I mean, that's not a big deal, but you know, you can't you can't un unsee that driver's license or passport. I, I like the deep bow thing as well, and I would love to see Western companies do that because I think it's both deserved and would be a really welcome change from the sort of you know legalistic regarding the incident that occurred last week regarding yes. our you know members. If you were offended, um, we're you know yeah yeah. Um, <laughs> On the other hand, they do engage in what I think you guys would recognize some pretty, uh, pretty common breach hand waving. We have no reason to believe that any of the stolen information has been used. You know, it's like, yes, we have no reason yeah. to believe that the, you know, $600 they took from your bedside drawer has been spent. And it's like, well, <laughs> I think it will be spent. <laughs> I think that's actually why they took it. And check this out. So on the site, women can join for free while men have to pay about 40 bucks a month in order for sexist in order to use the yes, services yeah yet both parties seem to have lost their data so yes <laughs> right so i guess there's equality there <laughs> now on their website you see i give you the link there um in the cast oh i'm on their right. homepage right now it, on me i they've got un they've underlined the i bit at the end <laughs> But if you if you scroll down, that they actually advertise their reasons for being safe and secure, right? They say basically, we make various efforts so that users who want to have a serious relationship can use it safely and securely. So we only display nicknames, only the people that have passed the age confirmation, which we have, you know, checked through <laughs> mm -hmm. every single. Only people who've uploaded their passport oh, will yeah, be allowed onto the site. They're so, <laughs> you know. Let me say my first off the top of my head impression of this site is that I am too old to use it. <laughs> right? And you know what? <laughs> but when I look at these faces, they all look young. <laughs> In the security section, they have this note. Okay, there's a starred bit and it says the use is limited Ooh. to singles and is prohibited for those who have a huh. lover. Huh. So don't get yeah. greedy. Don't get greedy. One lover at That's a time. Right. Don't go on the That's right. Lovers are not welcome. If you are looking for an affair, then go to ashleymadison.com. That's to be right. Just as careful with your data. That's right. Yeah, yes. but they, they're just looking for one night stands. That was hookup material. That wasn't love. That right. wasn't eHarmony. Isn't that the love one? eHarmony. Yes. eHarmony is the algorithmic love company. Yeah. Is it? Um, one of the things that I think is interesting is the cost of collecting and retaining this data. Yeah. Like, you applaud them for their sincere efforts to verify the actual identity of all their applicants. But you wonder, having a verified that identity why are you holding on to this data because it's like the mm. thirty thousand gallon tank of spent you know diesel fuel in the back of your lot you know if it just sits there long enough something bad's gonna happen you or know? the crate of mature stilton which i have or in the my crate of mature exactly. stilton right it it there is a risk to holding on to it. And the risk is that Definitely. it's going to leak. And I wouldn't want to know what that creative Stilton would look like if it were to leak. But I'm guessing it would be an ugly scene. Delicious. An ugly and smelly scene. I'd eat it. <laughs> Yummy. So what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. 
in the world of security we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors know before can tell you, human error is how most organizations get compromised. Where there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. And to do that, they need new school security awareness training. Know before the provider of the world's largest security awareness and simulated phishing platform. See how your security culture stacks up against Know Before's free phishing test. Get it now at knowbefore.com slash free test. That's K-N-O-W-B-E and the number four dot com slash free test. Think of Know Before for your security training. The perfect solution for companies of all sizes, 1Password is quick to deploy, simple to manage, and fits seamlessly into your team's workflow so you can secure your business without compromising productivity. All kinds of teams can securely share everything needed to work together, give employees access to logins, documents, credit cards, and more on all of their devices. See if company email addresses or credentials have been exposed in a data breach and get alerts when accounts are compromised so you can update passwords right away. Find out more and try 1Password for free for 14 days at onepassword.com. According to the One Login I Am OK mental health survey, more than 77% of technology leaders have said that their work-related stress increased due to the COVID-19 pandemic. In today's work-from-anywhere era, CISOs and IT executives work tirelessly to make sure the organization's information, assets, and technologies are properly protected. And this increased pressure has led to deteriorating mental health, addiction issues, and even suicidal thoughts and tendencies. One login's message, you are not alone. Smashing security listeners are invited to attend their live event on Wednesday, May 26th for free. It's called Keeping the Mind Clear and the Company Secure. Learn more at smashingsecurity.com forward slash one login. I am okay. That's smashingsecurity.com, one login, I-A-M-O-K-A-Y. And thanks to One Login for supporting the show. And welcome back. And you join us at our favorite part of the show, the part of the show that we like to call Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week is the part of the show where everyone chooses something they like. It could be a funny story, a book that they've read, a TV show, a movie, a record, a podcast, a website, or an app. Whatever they wish. It doesn't have to be security-related necessarily. Better not be. Well, my Pick of the Week this week is not security-related. I have, over the last few days, watched a TV program on the old television. In fact, on BBC iPlayer. Mm. And it is an adaptation of a book by Nancy Mitford called The Pursuit of of love are you freaking kidding me no i am not why have you chosen that as well no but you know i'm surprised you're is this a book you're doing no i'm not doing a book i'm doing the tv version oh okay i was gonna say because it's a beautiful (laughs) book listeners anyone who likes to read um i just didn't believe you were reading a book like that no i have not but if you'd like it it's good crawl (laughs) <laughs> I've seen the TV version. Oh, right. Who needs the book? And I right. really, really liked it because it was funny and crazy. And I'll tell you some of the people who star in it. We've got Lily James, Dominic West, Andrew Scott, who was Moriarty. He was also in Fleabag, if you remember him. And we also have Emily Mortimer, who appears as the Bolter, 
who is uh, the mother of one of the characters. And Emily Mortimer, the actress, also directs and uh, she wrote the adaptation as well of The Pursuit of Love. And it's it's really very entertaining. I wasn't quite sure what to expect when I started it, but I thought, oh, this is a lot of fun. And um, I greatly enjoyed it. And I was reading an interview of Emily Mortimer where she said it was partly based or at least inspired by that Marie Antoinette movie from a few years ago, which had modern bits and period bits, but modern music and all the rest of it. It's cut very well. What's this play? Where did you see this? On the BBC website. Oh, on the BBC. Yes, on the BBC. On the BBC, BBC, darling. Yes, on the BBC. Anyway, so my my recommendation, (laughs) my pick of the week this week is The Pursuit of Love on BBC iPlayer. I think you'll rather enjoy it. Paul, what's your pick of the week? I have, you know, I feel like the dinner guest who you invite and, you know, he just ends up talking about like environmental pollution or crime or something and just brings the whole party down. So fun. So fun. (laughs) I have a cybersecurity story that I grabbed from um, MIT Technology Review called Colonial Pipeline Ransomware Hackers Had a Secret Weapon, Self-Promoting Cybersecurity Firms. And it's by Renee Dudley and Daniel Golden. This is one of those stories that I didn't write, but I kind of wish I wrote. First of all, it profiled the work of this group called the Ransomware Hunting Team that is um, kind of a volunteer group that helps uh, ransomware victims get free of the ransomware and kind of works behind the scenes. Really interesting looking at that. It's also interesting because it talks a little bit about some of the um, ethical quandaries that cybersecurity firms face when they look to both call attention to their wares and their technical expertise, uh, but also in the process might actually do a favor for some of the cyber uh, criminal groups that they are uh, actually working against. Uh, So in this case, a bit of a tip off. In this case, uh, a cybersecurity firm developed a decryptor for uh, some Mm. ransomware used by the dark side group and um, basically blasted out to the world that they had a decryptor and that uh, dark side's ransomware uh, was reusing uh, RSA keys. And that was a big uh, red flag to the dark side group to fix that flaw in their ransomware, Um, (laughs) which they promptly did and then thanked the cybersecurity firm for tipping them off. So... um, there was a, there's a big discussion in this article just about that dynamic. What what is the moral responsibility of uh, cybersecurity companies, and uh, yeah. is there a right way to do this? So I, I read this article. And it's an it's an interesting security article. Yeah, I'm afraid it is. I'm really sorry, related, but that's all right. <laughs> Will you ever forgive me? No. <laughs> <laughs> but but you see, I, I I was thinking you're kind of damned either way, aren't you? Because yes. If you produce a tool to decrypt the damage done, you want to tell people that it's available because there may be victims who never find out that there's a tool available or there's a way to do the decryption. Yes. You know, it's, it, you know I, I have some sympathy with the security firm. I yes. This gets in, I mean, there are often issues that come up, you know, did Franklin Roosevelt know about Pearl Harbor, but didn't do anything because he knew that then the U.S. would be able to get into the mm. war. I mean, these type of ethical quandaries come up all the time. And in, in the cybersecurity ransomware world, they, they come up all the time as well. The big problem that this article raised, and this is a sort of structural problem, is that the traditional people we look to to address these problems, like the FBI um, or Scotland Yard, are way behind 
even volunteer groups like this ransomware hunting team in actually being able to intercede and help companies. I wrote an article for Security Ledger years ago, like 2014, based on a a presentation I had seen in Boston by the head of the Boston FBI, where he basically told an audience, if you get infected with ransomware, just pay the ransom because we can't help you. Um, the encryption's too good. We don't have the technical expertise to decrypt this stuff. So just pay the ransom. We, we can't spin straw into gold. We don't have the ability to do this. We're behind the bad guys in terms of our technical expertise and our ability to to fight back. So this article is your pick of the week this week. And if people want to hear more about the arguments back and forth, they can go and check it out. Crow, what's your pick of the week? Brackets, not security related, close brackets. It's very, very not security related. And it, my pick of the week is not an audio drama, oh. but it's an app. Marvelous. Okay, to help you take better pictures. Well, if you used to take pictures with an old camera and you miss the flexibility of that, but you don't really want to carry around a DSLR all the time. <laughs> and it's called Obscura. Mm -hmm. Basically, Apple has a very good you know, native app, but it's highly automated, right? And to some people, people that might be used to taking pictures with old cameras, it can feel a bit like a digital straitjacket because you don't have any manual control over the images. I mean, it's been getting better. I'm not saying it's the worst, but I'm just saying for a fiver, you can get Obscura, which I really like. You get full control over the key camera settings. Oh. So the, the UI is very nice, easy to kind of intuit and clear, speedy. And it's got great haptic feedback. And it also can read different picture formats. So JPEGs, but also the Apple HEIC mm -hmm. and the RAWs and, mm. and all those things. And it works in landscape portrait. It has loads of filters, which I haven't, I'm not really into filters. But if you are into that, there's tons of them. And it's just a really cool app. And I think well worth the money. So if you're into... Are you now using this as your default camera app? Um, I'm learning. I have to get the memory muscle right. to work, right? Because right? I keep kind of going, oh, that's amazing. And then I take it and I'm like, oh, God, why can't I get? And I'm like, no, no, just go to the other app right. and then fix the exposure and I'll get a much better pick. Mm. So it's worth it. So the app is called Obscura and it's my pick of the week. Marvelous. Now, Karul, you've been speaking to Javad Malik from No Before this week. Yes, we had a very amazing chat and what a great guest. So take a listen. This is Javad. We're here with someone who has actually been a guest host on Smashing Security before. That's Javad Malik. He is a security awareness advocate at NoBefore. Welcome, Javad. Uh, thank you so much, Carol. Thank you for having me. You are sitting now in the throne. This is like the featured interview. So we're kind of celebrating you and know me for this. <laughs> I know. I, I feel very honored. And, uh, you know, I could get used to this. This uh, throne is quite comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Javad, you do a lot of things. So uh, on top of being a security awareness advocate at Before, you also uh, are a host on a podcast. You're a popular vlogger and blogger. You do events. You're basically an all-round security pundit. Would that be fair? Yes, that's right. Um, when I try to sound cool, uh, I I say I'm think of like The Rock, who's multi talented in every facet, like wrestling, movies, business ventures. That's what I aspire to be in the security world. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you need to aspire. I think you've already reached many of those dizzying heights, Javad. 
kind. Oh, you're very kind. <laughs> well, look, now we are here to talk about Know Before. So can you tell us a little bit about the company and what Know Before does? So Know Before is focused on the human. You know, we talk about all our layers in security and we have all of our technical layers and protect and defend and detect and respond and all that kind of stuff. And majority of times we're focusing on the, the technical layers, which are very important. But what Know Before focuses exclusively on is the, the human layer within that. So people, they make mistakes and or they can be fooled and criminals, they you know, if you know, breaking into an organization technically directly is quite difficult these days. Um, so it's it's a favored technique is to just go after the user. So whether that be a phishing email, uh, a, you know, sending them a USB or, or drive to plug in or phoning them up and pretending to be, you know, someone and getting them to do something that's not in their best interest. Uh, that that is the preferred method that a lot of criminals break into organizations. I mean, even if you look at uh, a lot of these threat intelligence reports that track nation states or organized criminal gangs, the mm. majority of the time point of entry is through phishing emails. So what we do at Know Before is we we help try to strengthen the humans. We we give them security awareness and training, help them practice in a safe environment by sending them simulated phishing emails. Uh, and then there's a whole ton of um, awareness content on the back of it in the form of videos and games and uh, all other material like posters and what have you just to help people, uh, you know, just remember uh, what, what's important and, and what to do if they suspect anything to be uh, a bit malicious. Maybe you can tell us about it from the point of view of someone who might be interested in running these fishing simulations. They come across your name. How does it work? product is is really self-service it's 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 highly automated so if you're a customer or even if not you you can sign up to a free uh phishing test on um on our website you go knowbefore.com slash free test and um you can sign up there and what you'll see is that there's like thousands of templates there and these are in like different languages they're bundled into different categories so if you want hey let, let's do social media type one so you can say okay let's send our users a linkedin phishing template because that's quite a popular one in in the work work area you can you can tailor it to to be you know more specific or, or more generic and um you know it, it goes off to all, all the users that you specify and the, the great thing about the platform is that it can it can randomize the the time it sends them out so it's not like everyone in the office gets the exact same template at the exact same time because you then get the meerkat kind of response where one person gets it he looks up and they look around and say hey is there anyone else got this and everyone's like yes we got this and then it kind of defeats the purpose of of the test so <laughs> it so, reminds me of the mass mailers of uh of the yeah. Late, yeah of the early noughties yeah exactly exactly so you can you can actually send different templates to different groups of people or different I individuals and at different times so it staggers them out and uh and then what you can do you can you can see how many people have opened the email how many people have clicked through on a link or uh, whatever the payload might be it might be a link it might be a hey enter your credentials here it might be reply or, or whatever that is and then also you, you can see how many people have reported it to your security team. So whether that's a internal process you have, like if you receive a, a suspicious email, forward it to the security team, or you can download our, our fish alert button or PAB for short, which is a, a, a Gmail and an Outlook plugin that, that sits in your inbox. So if you see an email that looks suspicious, you just click the button 
and it takes it out of your inbox and sends it to the security team to investigate. So basically, you're putting the IT team in the driver's seat rather than you guys doing all the decision making on what contents included and how they're sent out. They actually get to decide themselves completely. It's almost like an autonomous effort. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And That's kind of cool. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, it's the security teams that ultimately have the relationship or should have the relationship with all the users within the organization. So they're mm. best placed to make the right decisions if they have the right relationships. And we've seen examples of where this has gone wrong, where, you know, they, they should have that environment where they tell people, hey, if you receive a phishing email, this is what you should do. This is what you should look out for. We're going to be doing simulation tests at this time, uh, you know, throughout the year. And these are some of the topics that, you know, we, we think are inappropriate for our user base because of whatever reasons. Uh, it's, it's when you get that wrong, people that, that instead of being educated in a, in a phishing test, they end up getting annoyed. Yeah. What we try and do is like give the people the right tools so that they can, uh, and, and we, we offer them uh, training and guidance on this. It's like, you know, how to send structure these campaigns so that when it goes out, people receive it with this spirit and intent that it was intended to, which is like, hey, this is a training exercise. We're all trying to get better here. We're not trying to catch people out and punish them for, for making a mistake, which frankly, anyone can because, make. Because, you know, a, an IT team that act like a kind of authority of punishment is not going to get people on side in terms of security. What you'll get is people trying to bypass security to do things in a secret way, which puts the company presumably more at risk. So it's important to work with the people to see the, you know, the point of this is to get people educated and protect the firm and the individuals. That's absolutely, that, that's exactly it. I mean, there, there was a story I read a few weeks ago, and uh, it was on, on uh, Sophos Labs published it. Mm. And there was a um, biomedical institute, and they partner with some universities. And there was some visualization tool that you could use if you were on premise, but if you're using your own machines, which everyone was because everyone's working from home. Mm. Uh, they weren't offering a license for that. Mm. And the license was really expensive. So what a user ended up doing or a student, they downloaded a cracked copy and mm. uh, Windows Defender threw up an alert. <laughs> and so they disabled Windows Defender. Oh. And uh, they, they then logged on and done their work. And two weeks later, the company was hit by ransomware. And this is the, the thing is that people are just trying to do their job most of the time. They're trying to be helpful and they're trying to get their work done. Um, and technology should be there to facilitate them in doing what they do. And if, if it's there as a blocker and security is no exception, security is probably it, when, when implemented poorly, it becomes the biggest blocker. Um, you know, if it's not implemented properly, then people will find creative ways to bypass it just to get the job done. And unfortunately, that does open up their uh, or exposes the company to to breaches. And so this kind of test would at nob4.com slash free test allows you to, I don't know, take a pulse of the company's ability to be fooled by such things. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And we, we have benchmarking reports on our on our website as well. You can go into resources and you can look for our benchmarking reports. And most companies, when they do their first test yeah. uh, without training and everything, it's typically over 30% of people will click on a, uh, will fall victim to a phishing email. Right. And 
And, and that's that's a high percentage. That's like one in three people nearly. That's more people than, than right click on ads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So three out of 10 people typically will fall for this if they've not given any previous cybersecurity training. Is that, is that what you're saying? That's right. That's right. And then what kind of numbers do you see after the training has gone through? If people have gone through a few simulations, have included, you know, like having presentations and, and you know, education provided internally? Yeah. So th there's a process you, you need to go through. Um, uh, you know, typically, if you're doing monthly sort of simulated phishing and you're you're offering ongoing awareness training. So you you've you sign them up to courses and they, they can be short ones, but it's like less but more often is is probably better. Mm. Uh and you run it like a like a proper campaign. Then after 90 days even, you can like halve that to to about 10 to 14 percent of people. And uh if you actually carry that on for a for a year, um that drops down to about five percent. So a, a significant reduction can yeah. be achieved um, over that period of time. Are you surprised at the number of companies that don't take security seriously even today? I mean, I don't know. I'm in the Oco chamber, right? I'm on this podcast every week. So I'm thinking and breathing and snarfling security all the time. But people who work in other industries, like say retail, finance, health, like, are they thinking about security as, as, as much as, as, as they should be, do you think? You know, it's it's that age old problem. If you if you take a problem to an engineer, they will reframe it as an engineering problem and they'll give you an engineering solution. Mm. If you take a problem to a security person, they're going to reframe it as a security problem mm. and present you with a security answer. So I think you're right. We, we, we have this bias because we, we are in this echo chamber as security professionals or practitioners. And other organizations and people working in other departments, they, they don't have that lens. And they, they're looking at things like, hey, what's our return on investment? What, what's our profitability this quarter? Uh, how can we make it out of the pandemic uh, without going bust? Mm. If, you, if you ask me from just a as pure security perspective, I'm like, no, people don't pay attention. Yeah. And, you know, they, they, they do far too little, far too late. But um, I think on, on the flip side, I think when, when you look at over the last couple of decades, there is a rise in awareness. People are a bit more clued on. And especially from a technical perspective, like operating systems and platforms are, are, are a lot more secure than what they used to be. Um, cloud services are, are really good uh, by and large, but um, it's, it's just making people aware of some of the dangers that are still out there. And we, we see it all the time with like unsecured S3 buckets out there. Mm. Uh, it's not that the, the functionality doesn't exist. It's just that someone just forgot to check or didn't think to check that should this option be ticked to private or public. Yeah. So, so I think it's just about making people aware and just reminding them and being that constant, constant thing in the background. It, it's not something you can, you can fix quickly. It's it's like any behavior change, and that that's ultimately what we're going for. It's it's like behavior change. Um, when we look at things like um, environmental awareness, uh, you know, growing up, we you know there wasn't really a concept of recycling or separating out your rubbish. Mm. But but today, you walk into any corporate office or even public um, dustbins, there's at least two, if not more. There's, there's maybe five in in some offices where 
when you go to throw away your rubbish, there's like, oh, well, let me separate my my recyclables from my landfill and 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 what have you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but this is something that happened over a long period of time and and raising awareness. And I think that that's the process we're going through at the moment with security awareness. Yeah, and also, I mean, with ransomware on the rise and with the pandemic forcing people to work from home and creating a almost a kind of new pl- playground for malicious actors. I think it's important for us to understand how we're being duped. And that changes all the time, because, of course, as soon as we're all aware that something can happen, we tend to be on our guard. So they change the pattern. And and people like know before, for example, are paying attention to that all the time. So I guess you're updating these tests and constantly providing new, uh, new information so people can kind of get tested against what's going on right now outside. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So our templates are constantly being updated. And, and then our, our awareness and training modules are always... Always new content being added. Yeah. Fantastic. Listeners, if you want to try a free phishing test, check out nobefore.com slash free test and see how safe your office is against this kind of stuff. Javad Malik, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Carol. Thank you so much. Fascinating stuff. Well, that just about wraps it up for this week. Paul, I'm sure lots of our listeners would love to follow you online. What's the best way for folks to do that? Two ways. Go to securityledger.com. And if you're interested in the right to repair stuff, I have a Substack, as every self-respecting journalist does these days, which is fighttorepair.substack.com. Cool. And you can follow us on Twitter at Smash Insecurity. No G. Twitter wouldn't last to have a G. And we're also up on Reddit, so look for the Smash Insecurity subreddit up there. And don't forget... To ensure you never miss another episode, follow Smashing Security in your favourite podcast app, such as Pocket Casts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And thanks to this week's episode sponsors, 1Password, no Before, and 1Login, and of course to our wonderful Patreon community. It's thanks to them all that this show is free. For episode show notes, sponsorship information, guest lists, and the entire back catalogue of more than 228 episodes, check out SmashingSecurity.com. Until next time, cheerio, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You guys are great. You're so smooth. It's like a well oiled machine. all here from Smashing Security. Now I have some fantastic news for you. You know how we started asking for a few more reviews? Well, quite a few of you decided to take part and take that 60 seconds to write something nice about us. Well, guess what? It's really helped. We've had our most downloaded show ever last week. How freaking cool is that? This week, I want to do a shout out to Zixis, who wrote many thanks to the hosts and guests for making the flow of entertaining and thought-provoking content. Listening to the podcast used to be part of my commute, and now it's an even more essential part of my lockdown endurance routine. Awesome and well done. Thank you, Zixis. And also to Red Piano Roland, always my pick of the week. This show never fails to make me smile. 
I always look forward to each new episode and listen whilst doing the cooking. It's been a rough few months and you guys have always been a lift to my spirits. Thank you, Graham and Carol. You are so, so welcome, Red Piano Roland. Guys, if you've got the time, please keep them coming. It is seriously making a difference in keeping us independent. Plus, it's just really, really nice to hear from you guys. Otherwise, it's just Graham. And I mean, ugh. <laughs> Buckets of love. <laughs> <laughs>